0: We're going to resume our study now. We're, we're back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. And what we've been doing for recent weeks is we're just looking at this Gospel, and we're just working through it verse by verse. And there's, there's some amazing insights that happen when you don't skip over passages. There's hard truths to hear, and we just get a full sense of, of what God desires of us. It was our our J.C. Ryle that said, it takes a whole Bible to produce a whole Christian. So it's helpful for us to to go through this. I'm going to read John 12, and we'll read verse 37 through the end. And this is Jesus' last public message in the Gospel of John. From chapters 13 through the end, those words are going to be for his disciples. So we might say this is his last sermon that he's going to preach here in, uh, in the Gospel of John, and that last sermon is going to be contained in verses 44 through 50. But the author, uh, John, has some insights in verses 37 through 43 that I think are very helpful leading up to it. So let's begin in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I'd just like to have a brief prayer here, thanking God for His Word. Lord, thank You that we can read Your Word. I'm thinking of what the Bible says about itself, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. And that we have absolute confidence that these words that are preserved for us are without defect, without error. You say your word revives the soul. And we need reviving. We need uh, to have your power and your drive to, to motivate and move through us today. Your word also, it says, is a testimony. And it is sure. Then it makes wise the simple. Well, Father, we need wisdom. We need your word to be able to see around us and how we are ought to live. Lord, we pray that as we look at these words, that we would just be caught up again with how wonderful Jesus is. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you were to remember, or from history, reflect on the great, it was called, the great revival or the great awakening that swept through our country in the 1700s, one of the main men that God used was a man named George Woodfield. And he preached the simple gospel message on God's holiness and the need for repentance. And families, individuals, churches, and communities were changed. They all began to seek after God. George Woodfield became known as one of the most prominent pastors during that Great Awakening, and he had a very interesting friendship with a man in Pennsylvania named Benjamin Franklin. In 1739, they met one another, and for 31 years, they served as good friends. Benjamin Franklin actually was a publisher of many of his sermons. In fact, he had a newspaper called the Philadelphia Gazette. And he, at eight different times, if I remember right, had taken the whole front page of his newspaper to dedicate to George Whitfield's sermon. He would take ten different editions of Whitfield's journals and sold thousands of his sermons and printing them and spreading them throughout the northeast part of the country. At one time, local pastors criticized George Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin took to the editorial and wrote to defend his friend. Despite 31 years of friendship, reading hundreds of sermons, and visiting there in his own house there in Pennsylvania over numerous conversations over the gospel, there's no evidence that Benjamin Franklin actually became a follower of Jesus. In fact, here's a quote that he wrote. Speaking of his friend George Whitfield, he said, He used sometimes to pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Here was a man that was so close to the gospel, He had written or read sermons. He defended his friend. He heard the gospel through conversations repeatedly, but he never crossed over and became a follower of Jesus. This morning, as we look at verses 37 through 43, we see a tragedy of unbelief. I'm defining unbelief this morning as the deliberate choice to reject God and His Word. As we look at our context here of John chapter 12 in the church, we have what's called Holy Week. That's kicked off by Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. on Friday of that week, it's culminated in His death. And then three days later, He is raised to life. John chapter 12 takes place on Wednesday of that week. The author of this book is There's the one disciple that went all the way to the cross with Jesus, and he stood at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother. All the other ones abandoned him. It is believed that the Gospel of John was written approximately 60 years after these events. So you have this old man, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reflecting on his life and the life of Jesus, And as he summarizes Jesus' public ministry in his work, he includes these verses that speak about how the majority of the people did not embrace or believe in Jesus or his message. Steve Lawson, a preacher, said, There is only one sin that will never be forgiven. It is a sin. Of unbelief. Unbelief leads a person not only to reject God, not only to reject His Word, but also to reject the one solution that one would have to be forgiven of their sins Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And to reject that is to reject your one and only hope. Well, today, we are going to look at this passage, and I just want to warn you that this is going to get pretty deep. All right. I'm reminded of this this past summer. Uh, our family went up to Northern California to the redwoods. We come out of the redwood forest, and then we just mistakenly crossed over a bridge, and we looked down at this beautiful blue water, and we said, "Let's go swimming in that water." Pulled over, and as we went, made our way down these steps down to this great. Beautiful Smith River. We looked across the river and we saw these high rocks that people were jumping off the rocks into the water. And I said to myself, I wonder if that's safe. So I asked some of the locals there and they said, Yes, but you want to walk up this way and that way. And you make sure that when you jump, you jump into the deep part. And so I said, Boys, I'm going to lead the way. And I I swam across or into the current to get over there, climbed up on the rock. When I got way up high to the rock, I looked down. And I could see this beautiful, clear blue water. And it occurred to me, there is no way in the world that I'm going to touch the bottom of that deep pool. It is so deep and cold (laughs) that there's no way I can touch that. Well, that's kind of how I feel this morning as it approaches John 12, 37 particularly through 43, that this passage is so deep that there are things that are over my head that are not connecting and intersecting, but I'm just going to just give it to you verse by verse here. And let's just realize that you're going to have to put your thinking caps on here, okay? The first truth that I think we see here about unbelief is that unbelief is actually a matter of the heart. Look what it says there in verse 37. At the end of Jesus' public ministry, he's been going at it now for over three years, it says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Sometimes we think that unbelief is the result of evidence. That there's not enough evidence that will convince me to believe in the Bible or God or Jesus. But when you look at verse 37, there was an insurmountable amount of evidence. There were these signs, there were these miracles that pointed that Jesus is God. If you know the book of the Gospel of John, you know that this, this book is, is outlined with seven signs or seven miracles. There's him turning the water into wine. There's him healing a nobleman's son healing a paralyzed man, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, bringing sight to a man that was born blind, and then raising a dead man back to life. And most of these miracles were performed publicly so that everyone could see them. This group of people, the vast majority of them that saw and heard Jesus, despite seeing these many signs, still did not believe in him. The issue was not evidence. The issue was their heart. They were unwilling to believe. I remind you, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John, it says there in John 20, verse 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., said this, Unbelief never involves the mind alone. It is a spiritual state. And friends, it's the same today. If one would just take an honest look At the truths, they will see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. What the people had done that day is they had resolved not to believe. And there was no evidence in their minds that would be able to cross the line for them to believe. They had already settled it. And so there's these miracles performed, but didn't turn the needle at all for them. It's like a man that goes to the doctor because of a shortness of breath and chest pains. And the doctor says, we're going to run a series of tests. And as the test results come back, he says to the man, listen, you have a 99.9% blockage. You are not going home today. In fact, we're calling for emergency surgery for bypass right now. Here is the evidence. Let me show it to you. And the man says, no. I don't care what you show me. I will not go under surgery. I will not allow you to cut me open. I am making this decision against all that information, all that data. It's like a person that's ready to go on a road trip down to the Smoky Mountains. And so they take their car to their mechanic. And the mechanic says, I don't even know how your brakes are working this far. In fact, I don't think you're going to get out of the city of Green Bay. You're certainly not going to get out of the state of Wisconsin with your brakes working. You need to have these replaced right now because you're going to be driving up and down these mountains. The man says, I don't care what you've showed me. I'm not going to get these brakes replaced. Unbelief isn't so much a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. The second thing we see in this passage is unbelief fulfills God's word. Look at what it says in verse 38. So they didn't believe, in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Why, why, didn't, they, why didn't they believe? So that the word of God might be fulfilled. And here's the verse, it's quoted from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, that says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, if you know that section of Isaiah, that's speaking of Jesus that is to come. And a question is posed, who has believed? And the answer is, hardly anybody. So here's Jesus, the promised Messiah that has come. to to save the people from their sins. He has been presented to the people and the vast majority of them are rejecting Him and rejecting His Father and rejecting the Word. It is tragic. God makes a people for Himself. He provides for them. He protects them. He leads them. He gives them leaders and prophets and they no longer want to be ruled. And listen to this though. The greatest bad leads to the greatest good. It's because of that rejection. It's because of that unbelief that the cross was needed. Not only this, this is where it's going to get a little deep now, because of God's people, the Israelites rejected Jesus. That opened a door for us the non-Jews, or the Gentiles. Do you remember a story that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14 about the great banquet? Let me just read to you those verses. I think it illustrates this. He says in Luke 14, verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the end for that banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. They said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came Hoarded these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes in the city and bring in the poor, crippled, and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited. Shall taste my banquet. This is a picture of a great invitation list that has been offered to God's people, the Israelites. A Messiah has come to save them from their sins. They have been invited first in line, but you know what they've done? They have rejected it. And as a result, there is a second invitation list made to the invalid, to the blind, to the lame. And they come. And who do you think we are? We, we are the invalid, the poor, and the lame. Later in, in chapter 12 here, verse 40, another Isaiah chapter in verse, chapter 6, verse 10 is going to be quoted. And that's quoted again. And Acts 28, verse 28, but I just want you to see what what that says. So so I want you to know that there's salvation from God and has also been offered to the Gentiles and they will accept it. The invitation went out to the Jews, but they were in unbelief. So now the invitation goes out to us non-Jews. Do you see how God has worked good The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. As the Jews looked at this stone, they're like, we don't want this. Let's cast it out. But for us sinners, we're like, we're going to build our lives on Jesus. He's going to become the cornerstone. He's going to be the foundation of our lives, our family, and our church. You feel free to cast him out, but he's all ours. If God can take the rejection of a son and work eternal good from it, could he not take the times that you are rejected and work good from it too? Let me give you a third truth here about unbelief. All right. Unbelief leads to spiritual blindness and a hard heart. So what we saw in verse 38, having quoted, Isaiah 53 verse 1, listen to what it says in verse 39. Therefore, what's therefore? Because these people have rejected Jesus and are in their unbelief, they started it. They could not believe. Therefore, now they they cannot believe. For Isaiah again said, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Do you see what's taking place there? Initially, God's people, the Israelites, had hardened their hearts. And there was a line in the sand where God said, if that's what you want, I'm going to harden your heart for you. And listen to me. There was a, part, a point of no return at that moment. I believe that's what it says. Because of their unbelief, verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. So what we have here is God may give a person over to their hard heart and harden it permanently. I warned you, (laughs) these are some hard truths to bring to you today. I don't know about you, but I like food that I like to eat. But not every food that we eat tastes good, but we still need it. And to those of you who are sitting here today and you have been consistently rejecting the truth of who God is and you are in your unbelief, there is a warning for you that God may choose to actually harden your heart so that you will be unable to respond. I think that's what we see here. Here's a great example of that, Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh in in the book of Exodus? Exodus? Pharaoh was the, was the king in place where Moses was to go to release the people from Egypt and allow them to go out and worship into the promised land. And you remember there were these ten plagues. And when you read about the early plagues, what you read about is how, listen, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You read that three different times. But then those of you who know this story, what becomes a prominent theme after that? The Lord hardened his heart. It's a word of warning to us. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. There's a tragedy to unbelief. And if that is true, not only of an individual person, is it possible for a nation? To be able to harden its heart. And so we understand what the Bible says. We understand what truth is. But we don't want it. And after a while, God says, I'm going to hand you over to what you want then. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Is there anyone righteous there? There isn't anyone righteous there. Well, let me give them what they want. Judgment. Was it not true of Israel? I mean, that's the context here. Let me let someone else have their land. Let me let someone else rule my people. There comes a time where we can cross a line. And we've hardened our heart. And God can permanently harden our heart. It's a chilling reminder to our country, isn't it? I don't know if we've crossed that line. But may God have mercy that we would not have. And we pray for God to bring that revival again towards our people, towards his church. Finally, this unbelief is fueled by a drive to please others. I think before I step into that, I want you to see this again here in verse 40. It says in verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Their their spiritual eyes can't even see what the basic common sense truth is. Not only that, but their hearts are so hard that they've rejected God entirely. And then it says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Maybe just in parentheses here, if you were at a a school that was a secular university and maybe you were taking a class in the Bible, you would likely be taught that Isaiah has two different books. There's the first 39 chapters, and then there's the second 27 chapters. And many liberal teachers believe that there's actually two Isaiahs. There's a, one of the first 39 chapters because of the way it is written of God's judgment. And then the next 27 chapters seems to be a different Isaiah because it emphasizes God's grace and mercy. But you see, Jesus eliminates that controversy when he says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And he not only quotes from Isaiah 53, that would have been in the second book, but he also quotes from Isaiah 6, which comes in verse 40, which would have been in the first book. And if you're familiar with that passage there in Isaiah 6, it's that great passage of God's presence. Let me just revisit that with you really quick. Isaiah chapter six. I'll just read a few verses there. It says, In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he had covered in his face, and with two he covered in his feet, and with two he flew. And no one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. you remember that story? As we turn back to John chapter 12, we see that verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of Him. Who is he referring to? Him. He's referring to Jesus. So in Isaiah 6, that vision is one of those existences of Jesus. We call it the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus. He is relating Isaiah 6 back to Jesus. Well, let's go back now to to the fourth point, and that is unbelief is fueled by a drive to please others. Look at verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. They knew who he was. They know his words were authoritative. They know those miracles were from God, but it says here, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory That comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were some that heard Jesus and saw Jesus, and evidently they were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. But they were unwilling. Why? Because they were concerned what others would think of them. And they worshipped man's approval more than God. It's a chilling thought. In a way, when a person believes in Jesus and is saved of their sins, their life becomes remarkably simple. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. When you're a follower of God, life boils down to this one thought, I'm here to please God. What is it, God, you want me to do? I want to give my life for glory to you, but that also influences our relationships and how we treat our wives, how we lead our children, how we love our neighbor as ourselves and even pray and do kind things to those who persecute us and ridicule us. You want to have good relationships, set a priority of pleasing God. Well, that's it. That, that's this tragedy of unbelief. How is it we should apply this passage? Well, I think we can apply it by just not having unbelief, but actually believing. So let me just give you a few different applications before we leave this and participate in the Lord's Supper. The first thing is, is to believe God and His Word. If unbelief is to reject God and His Word, well, don't do that. Instead, place your faith in God and His Word. And and we see here in verse 44, Jesus cried out. This will be His last public sermon of the Gospel of John. And what will He preach on? It's not going to surprise you. He will preach the Gospel. It says that He cried out. These were not just robotic phrases, but he cried out from the very depths as he looked at the people who were unbelief, who would die in their sins and go to hell. He is crying out that they might be saved. And he says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And then he says, to see Jesus is to see God. Verse 45, and whoever sees me, Sees him who sent me. A little bit later, he'll say not only that, but to hear Jesus is to hear God. Look at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself, given me a commandment, what I am to say and what I am to speak. These words that I'm giving to you, they come from the Father. In the Old Testament, the prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord... But every time Jesus spoke, these were the words of God. And then we are to believe that Jesus is our Savior. It says there in verse 46, Jesus says, I have come in the world as light, so that whatever, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Just last night, I'm sitting at the desk, I'm working on this message at our home. I look out, and it's dark, and Joshua comes through the door, and he says, Dad, we're going to go outside. Can I, can I have a light? He wants to use my phone. I said, well, there's a headlamp over there. And Why? Because he can't see. And a little bit later, I see him, and his brother's outside, running around with Hank, our, our, our dog, because they, they needed to see And Jesus saying, I am light. I want to provide light for you that you don't need to be under judgment, but you could have a relationship with my Father. Jesus has come for that. And it says not to remain in darkness. In Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul wrote, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So when a person becomes a follower of God, they leave the kingdom of darkness and all the influence or the or the the power of sin, and they leave that and they start walking in the light and walking in the kingdom of the light. Maybe I'll give you a little bit of a quiz here. Sometimes I hear this when I was six years old, I understood that I was a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for me. When I was 13 years old, I was at winter camp, and there was a great speaker. He had us laughing, and he had us crying, and I I remember him uh, saying uh, something about asking Jesus into your heart. And I was really emotional that night. And then at age 17, I was just reading through the Scriptures, and it occurred to me, that I was not where I was supposed to be with God. I was in sin. And that these words in the Scriptures, they were not suggestions. They were commands. And I realized that I was not at all where God wanted me to be. And I cried out for Him to save me of my sins. And He did a great work. And you know, it was at age 17 where I began to walk in obedience to the Lord. So let me ask you something, friend. At what point did this person become a Christian? Age 6, age 13, or age 17? I believe it was the moment that that person began to walk in the light. and began to give evidence of fruit of their walk. And then finally, what we see here, is that we are to obey the command to believe. Look what it says there in verse 50. This is how Jesus concludes his sermon. He didn't go to the same preaching class I did when I was in seminary. He says, And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Oftentimes, we extend what we call an invitation. And that can sound a lot like, hey, we're having some people over uh, after church. Uh, If you can make it, that would be great. But if you can't make it, that's quite all right. There'll be other opportunities. But when Jesus concluded his sermon, you know what he said? You are commanded to believe. That is, every person on this planet is commanded to believe that Jesus has died for their sins, and they must believe in Him for eternal life. Every person, you are commanded to do that. And if you don't, then there are consequences. That's what this says, loved ones. And so as we close this message today, have you obeyed this commandment? To believe that Jesus is God? To believe that when you saw Jesus, you saw God. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. Do you, do you realize that He is your Savior? He'll either be your Savior or He'll be your Judge. Have you placed all of your hope in Him to save you. You see, this passage kind of separates Christianity from all those others that say there is a God and you can get to Him from a variety of ways. There is one way and it is through Jesus. So today, as Miss Karen comes and we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, this is no work of our own. I believe that there are some here today that would say, I need, I need to follow through with this. So I don't ask you today, or have you prayed a prayer before, but I would ask you, are you walking in the light? Is there evidence in your life right now that the Lord is working, that there's consistency as the Lord has given you the strength and the power to obey, that you are obeying more and more Of his teachings. This is not a work of yourself, but it's a work of God's grace. I would urge you this morning to run to Jesus, run to the cross, and say, I do believe you are my only hope, and I will trust in you not only for this life, but the life to come. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word that doesn't always just tell us the things we want to hear, but it tells us the things that we need to hear. And what firm words there are here for those at this moment who are rejecting Jesus. It causes us, I think, just to shudder, to think it's possible that a line could be drawn in the sand and says, okay, you want to harden your heart? well, then you're going to remain in that state. Oh, Lord, I pray for you to have mercy. We see that you are long-suffering, and one of the reasons that you have not come yet to send Jesus back quite yet is to, is to call people to themselves. And here's the command to respond, to place their faith in what Jesus has done to ask for forgiveness, to ask for the grace to, to live out this Christian life. May it be not said of us that there were all these miracles that took place but we did not believe. Rather, your word pointed us to Jesus and gave us the grace and faith to be born again. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.